man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. I've won every battle. But I'm losing this war. Show them how it feels to lose what they love. Everyone is mine to torment. <laughs> the long night is coming. Don't show me that. No! And the dead come with it. <laughs> no! Take it back. No! Oh, snap. It was just extremely creepy, uh. ominous way to open up our real first look at season six. Presumably. Yeah. Presumably. We don't really know what this all means. We know that there are a couple of people that they showed at the very beginning that are in fact dead, but then there are others whose faces we see who have yet to die. And are very much alive. Let's make that clear. <laughs> it's very much alive. It's our principal cast. Welcome everyone to Game of Owns. Hello. Thank you for listening. Thank you. We're back. Photos, teaser trailers, two amazing chapters. There's a lot to talk mm. about today. Hype train continues. Full steam ahead. Yarn, powering it. Eric, you know what I'm talking about. I really want a uh, a beard like Tyrion's, like Tyrion's disembodied face, his beard. So can we talk about the the teaser, the way it felt up until the point Tyrion's face was shown? Yeah. It's Tyrion, then Danny is to his right, Sansa's to his left. Below him is Arya. I mean, going in before that, look, Ned Stark is, I don't want to say, a, I mean, he's just the go-to. It's so iconic. Ned's mm-hmm. line as well, which they use in voiceover. Getting Sean Bean back for this or using that footage, reusing that footage, along with his likeness. I can't, I still can't think of another way to set, to better set the tone for a Game of Thrones thing. Even though, let's be honest, that was years and years and years ago. You know, we've so moved on in story but perhaps not emotionally from the death of ned stark definitely yeah. who, he, who he was as a character seemed to symbolize something much greater uh in this universe so this trailer multi-purposes right we've got i think just off the top of my head teases of the past that could come into play for mm-hmm. the season approaching and that's why we're, we're going back but also that actual room the mechanic of that room serving as faces of past dead individuals now, obviously, I think the way it works is they have to be part of the circumstance in that actual building before they become a tool that's accessible by the assassins that I work inside that. of that building. But we understand thematically why they were using it for that teaser trailer. But my, my mention of Tyrion, and this may have been the same for all of you watching at home for the first time, up until that point, all of the faces that we saw were people that were actually dead. And I feel like when once... We kind of got showed everyone, and we oh well, that person's alive. That person's alive. That person's alive. I think the the tone of the the, the trailer kind of changed. It became oh okay, this is kind of a you know what I mean. Like this is a an exercise in creativity versus showing well, us actual dead people. So maybe Jon Snow is alive after all, <laughs> right? Well, when I saw Jon, I was like, well, he is dead. Well, way way to drive an end because you know his face is there, mm-hmm. and not only him there too. To right looks like Ygritte, to the left looks like Stannis. 
Mm. All right. We didn't get a lot of, you know, quote unquote, new footage with this. And I think that people were a little bit disappointed and hoping that we'd really get to see something, actual scenes from season six. But I mean, this was pretty cool. That was, I think, the first reaction I was seeing online is, oh, no new footage. I think Watchers may have even had a, a tweet about that. No new footage. But for me, it's it's all about the creativity that they're doing. And, and ultimately, the, the final statement for me and showing live people, people who we suspect to still be around. I mean, Catelyn, John, in some form this season, showing the people who are blatantly still alive at the end just showed me, hey, you know, they could be saying every anyone could be next. Anyone could find themselves right. up on this wall. And that to me is the, is the greater message here and, the, and like even more terrifying than just showing the people who've come before and died. No one is safe. We did a poll yeah. on Twitter and that was the the overwhelming response is that people want wanted more footage. So, I mean, I think, do we all agree as a, as a teaser, this was a very cool teaser, but do we also all agree that it was a bit late in the release? Like, especially after we just saw almost 30 photos of the new season to kind of give a, a teaser that was like this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think if you were to guess, like, which would have come first in, in retrospect, you would have guessed this um, because of the fact that there's no new footage. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I think after seeing all those pictures, I would have liked to see some footage, but I still thought this was great. Yeah, I really liked it. That for me, too, is like, again, are they trying to put Jon Snow to bed here? Uh, You know, the theories to rest, because I still go back to one of the first photos we saw, which was the advertisement in Times Square, which you just you just can't. I think it's just meant for the purpose of pure speculation. And for all of us, we don't know what the future holds. I think that's the great part. We've discussed it many times on the show, the fact that now we're all in a place where we don't know the events that are to come. And very easily, as it pans out and you see those six characters who we've all come to know over the course of these last five seasons, you're you're wondering to yourself, okay, what is going to happen to Tyrion, to Sansa, to Danny, to Cersei, to Arya, to Jaime. We don't know. We don't have those answers. And very easily at the end of this season, at the end of next season, at the end of the eighth season, they could be here. Uh, but I found it interesting that the actual uh, voiceovers end when you get to this part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that saying that all of those people prior to this are in fact dead, including John? Versus where we are now you know, with the focus on yeah. Tyrion, you don't hear his voice. So Interesting. what does that mean? You know, the, the, the words that they used, the quotes that they used were sort of that each character's legacy. And because the other characters are still alive, we don't yet know what their real legacy quote will be. You know what I'm saying? Like Tyrion and Danny have, a, have presumably a long way to go before they die, we hope. And, you know, what is going to be their defining Quote, sure, they've had a lot of zingers up to this point, but ultimately it's not its definitive versus even if Jon Snow comes back, you know, will he be the same? We've questioned this before. Will he be a different character entirely played by the same actor? What will happen? You know, it's safe to say, I think, in some respects that that the Jon Snow quote they used is is the epitome of what that character was all about. Well, definitely there at the end after what he saw and, you know, what he's been working for, what everyone's surrounding him is truly afraid of so I, I i don't know and and why is it those characters why the focus on ned rob catalin joffrey john and not hodor <laughs> it could be a very interesting hodor that we get 
if he were to speak. Odor's just doing what his quote. Been real great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it cuts from <laughs> to like John. It's very serious. Ned Stark, Catelyn. And then it cuts to Hodor's face, and he's like, Hodor. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the perfect parody of this trailer, is just mm-hmm. somebody to cut in Hodor. My point was, why those characters? There's plenty of characters who have died in this series. Why those? Tonally, it's it's the people that, not only do they focus just on Starks, which is kind of interesting if you want to look at it that way, but they shape the the tone of the direction of the show. You know, the, the War of Five Kings is a big deal. And to see Rob, basically the the fallen king, who fell in sort of the worst way, further illustrates, and you know, and, and his mother with him further illustrates the harshness and the reality of the world, and I think makes it makes the argument of how plausible it is that literally anyone can die at any time. Well, as a teaser, I think it did did well to remind us what we've lost and what we have to lose. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like a reminder of where we've been, with a glimpse of what's to come. Yeah, right. Lots of mystery. And uh, promises, particularly from Catelyn Stark and Rob, and some solid life advice, I think, from Ned and also from John. I think those two kind of echoed each other rather well. Uh, mm. And Catelyn and Rob sort of uh, also kind of married their statements. And like I said, when I saw Tyrion's face, I just felt, I just, you know, <laughs> I was scared for a moment. I was like, what, is <laughs> what the hell? Like, because of the teaser we got, remember the just the poster for the last season we saw? Tyrion facing down a dragon and honestly I thought that was a bit much uh, it kind of took a lot of the surprise out of that that part of it for me heading into season 5 and mm-hmm. I, honestly I, I can't believe we're this close to going into season 6 because the time has passed so quickly but I, that's kind of an old statement it's very redundant because it seems to happen that way every year but I thought that maybe for a second we were getting obviously that that's too far and that was just where my mind went while watching it and upon actually thinking about it I knew better but for a second there, when I saw Tyrion's face, I was like, no. It's it's sort of like the you're going to die, Charlie, uh, reveal and lost, right, Hannah? Yeah. Charlie's death was foretold by the show in a quite blaring, you know, un- unforgiving way. And it I, I, I'm still debating whether or not it was a good thing for the show. But ultimately, to, to do what I think you're saying, Zach, is, you know, to spoil us again or leap so far. Because I, I agree that him and the dragon really just told us immediately where he was going. It did, but we're not getting teased that. Like, it's so mysterious now. We've got John, you know, the poster very close up, bloody, etc. Mm-hmm. We've gotten these two teasers and we've gotten photographs, but the photographs have really just confirmed what was pretty clearly already happening. So I think more than anything, the fact that we haven't got a teaser at this point, and I'm speaking directly to all of you listening at home that are upset that we haven't got a, a teaser yet. I think that they're really girding their loins for the, a very mysterious and highbrow approach to this season. I agree. I, and, and I think you're supposed to have that feeling of dread when you get to the end of this trailer because you don't know what's coming. Mm-hmm. And all these people previously are dead. And now here you have some of your favorite characters, principally Tyrion, who's pretty much everybody's favorite character in some capacity, right? And there is his face. And we've already lost John in last season. So we know that George R. R. Martin doesn't mind killing off characters that people become very, very attached to. So I think it serves its purpose. I agree with what Zach said about, you know, they're they're kind of just, you know, slow playing this for as long as they possibly can. We got photos, so we've seen actual moments of season six. But 
when the actual trailer is going to be released that has some new footage that we can talk about at length. I don't know, and if I were them, I would I would play it up to as close to the actual air date as as is possible. It's fun, right? Mm-hmm. It's very frustrating, but I think that, like you said, Mike, I think that's kind of the the point here. Yeah, let's just hope that the quality of the show reflects the seriousness and the dramatics of this approach. Mm-hmm. And when that first episode and the subsequent episodes drop, that our jaws are safely resting on the ground. I have no doubt that that's exactly how it's going to be. We have. Two full months before we get to find out. Are we more than excited for these chapters? I know I, think I am. The text yeah, messages these... leading up to the recording. Lots of all yeah. caps. These are great. <laughs> I just think that when we first started talking about doing a reading order and I read these chapters back to back, and even though I guess technically they're the first POV chapters in both of the books, but that doesn't really matter. But reading them back to back, I was so excited. I was like, there was no other way for us to do this than with this reading order. <laughs> because getting Cersei and Tyrion back to back like this is way too much fun. They're siblings, right? <laughs> but to have their their con their contrasted uh reactions to what just happened in King's Landing is mm. it's really fun. No, it is. And I you know, Tyrion being missing from the entire book that Cersei's in, uh, in some ways, but in other ways, he's present in her mind. And then going straight to Tyrion and seeing how much his family still haunts or irks him and plays into his decisions was very rewarding. These chapters feel congruent. They feel exactly as if they were written back to back originally, but because they weren't, it's, it's like sort of makes it even more special from the parallels that we could draw, uh, between them. It just yeah. shows that George has the capability to be in to basically re-inhabit the the world at any given chronology and flesh it out and make it even wider and cooler yeah and corresponding themes as well those damn moths kept jumping between (laughs) the two chapters there's a moth i think stuck in a lantern and then uh, moth eaten clothes so just read the chapters closely the clues are there the moths are what's going to come from beyond the wall yes great large Ice moths. That's terrifying, Hannah. That is absolutely <laughs> terrifying. We need Godzilla. I, I hope uh, I hope Cold Hand's first name isn't Ingrid, and that was for those who haven't seen or known about the Mothman. Chapstick. Stop. <laughs> I still get terrified every time I see Chapstick. Is that why your lips are always so cracked, Eric? It's true. I won't use the stuff. I, uh. I, I, I don't want any late night uh, men in my sink. I, I don't care for it. These chapters are great. And getting into the sort of the meat of the first like repercussions from the events of Storm of Swords uh, is, is the most exciting part. Mm-hmm. And he could have relied on what he's done previously. Oh, the bells, the bells are wheeling. But really like the most terrifying these people, uh, whoa, the most terrifying force these people are, are fleeing from is themselves and their own actions and what they and sort of their family members like uh, i think it really illustrates how the game has changed where the forces of um change are are coming from in these characters lives it's coming from a different place than it was before and we have to think about just look back at the stories that we've gone through i know it's easy to live inside the current moment because you should but we were once with Timot, son of, son of Timot, with Tyrion Lannister. And we were once with Mord, and Cersei was once in Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've been a lot of places with these characters, and now we're dealing with what happens after 
one of them murdered their own father. Tyrion is far off in the east. Cersei's waking up in King's Landing. And I feel like we're so spoiled because there was a large gap of time between books three and four. And there was an even larger gap of time between books three and five. But here on the podcast, we get to just read Cersei one and Tyrion one back to back with all of you guys. Should we apologize or, or, or say, uh, here's a moment of silence for the people who had to wait? Or um, we tip our hats. I think they've waited long enough because we started off with the trailer on this episode. So yeah. like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay. You waited long enough, guys. I'm really excited to be in Cersei's head for the first time. Oh, right. kind of, I think it's going to be really interesting for us to get a perspective from, you know, we're talking about, you know, where we've been with her and where we're going with her and to understand why she's making the decisions that she's making and kind of, I think it's either going to make us like her more or hate her more, depending on who you are. Um, but I'm really excited to yeah. kind of dive into her thought process. I have to say her first chapter is really fascinating for that reason, among others, but she is a very competent Lannister sibling or child, you know, she's son of uh, or daughter of, of Tywin. Given well, that you may have had... had it right the first time based on what she says in this chapter. <laughs> she speaks with steel. She's the son. <laughs> she's yeah. the only son of the Tywin only son Lannister. of Tywin. Right. But I mean, her portraying herself that way and, and, you know, she believes it and she's really personally affected. I'm just, my, my point was we've already been in the heads of the other two siblings. Um, to finally get Cersei and to have it be such an important sort of game-changing chapter for her, um, seeing how she deals with this tragedy. And, you know, it's it's pretty bold, I think, some of the claims that she makes and her, her efforts. She's not defeated. She doesn't curl up and cry. She makes sort of plans and adjustments and is really finding her way through this lost and mysterious time. Mm-hmm. This is the perspective I wanted to see. Because in the show, obviously, we go directly to the funeral Mm. but this is directly after it's happened she's literally being woken to be told about what's happened she's surrounded by people and immediately inside the mind of cersei lannister we know that she's paranoid from the start yeah Mm -hmm. directly well and it's this dream that she's had right and it's it's we've we've had our fair share of uh, prophetic dreams in the past but she has this dream where she's on the throne and it's not just any throne, it's the Iron Throne, and it's cutting her. And I'm thinking, sure, this is terrifying, and that's probably what would happen if you were to ever put your bare posterior on the Iron Throne. But I'm thinking, you know, what if it's a, uh, what if it's a metaphor for the price you pay in general for, for ruling Westeros? Like, you can't sit on that throne without getting cut up, she's bloody. Like, what if that is what George is really saying here, that yeah. ruling comes with a cost? There's this line where the more she struggled, the more the throne engulfed her. And I think it just reminds me of she's trying to maintain control over the throne and, you know, all this kind of stuff that's happening with her family. But everybody that she loves is being, I mean, her children are being lost and her dad's gone. Just as this need for power has become at a great sacrifice to her family and her loved ones. She dreamt she sat the iron throne, high above them all. The courtiers were brightly colored mice below. Great lords and proud ladies knelt before her. Bold young knights laid their sword at her feet and pleaded for her favors. And the queen smiled down at them, until the dwarf appeared as if from nowhere, pointing at her and howling with laughter. 
The lords and ladies began to chuckle too, hiding their smiles behind their hands. Only then did the queen realize she was naked. Horrified, she tried to cover herself with her hands. The barbs and blades of the Iron Throne bit into her flesh as she crouched to hide her shame. Blood ran down her legs as steel gnawed at her buttocks. When she tried to stand, her foot slipped through a gap in the, oof, through, in the twisted metal. Ugh. The more she struggled, the more the throne engulfed her. Damn, tearing chunks of flesh from her breasts and belly, slicing at her arms and legs until they were slick and red, glistening. And all the while, her brother capered below, laughing. I, I go back to what Eric said, though, about how to sit the Iron Throne just takes so much from you. And... I think this was a clear representation of that. She has been through a lot already. She has a lot more that she is going to go through. We know from season five, uh, when they were talking about the throne, which you just read, Zach, he was sort of cutting her and 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 really just basically eating her alive. It, it reminded yeah. me a lot of her walk and you know, she's naked in this dream. She's naked during that. And, you know, she has to repent for all that she has done over the course of these first several books that we've read. And I wonder if it was a little bit of foreshadowing uh, for what is to come for her. Uh, but the fact that Tyrion is sitting there laughing right, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the people are laughing at her as well. And it's very much, you know, with the absence of Tyrion, what happens to her later on in the series? You know, the, the, these people that as she walks by are calling her brother fucker. They're throwing f- their feces at her. She's walking barefoot through the streets. Her feet are turning bloody. And I think that it's very significant that in this moment, right, as she's learning of her father's death, this is really the tipping point for what is to come. And, and it's Tyrion's fault. And it is Tyrion's fault. So it all kind of weaves together. Uh, and and so for her now, she is going to have to figure out. And Hannah mentioned earlier, finally being inside of Cersei's mind. I think that, that it, it, it's so unique to get her perspective because in the show, as, as, as Zach mentioned, you just go right to the funeral. But at, at the onset, it's, she doesn't think it's Tyrion who's responsible for Tywin's death. There's a lot of other people, Stannis, possibly the Tyrells, and to know that she first didn't lay blame upon her brother is interesting to me because there's so much hate for him that is apparent in the show. Well, she assumes that he's too cowardly to actually kill Tywin Lannister. That's true. Which is also telling. And the fact that she goes right to the political-minded ideas of Caspaws being sent by certain people is also very telling. I feel like we're kind of in a, a dance right now with the things that she's that she's focused on, maybe even frightened of, the things that she's definitely worried about. And that's ruling, and that's this past, this prophecy by Maggie the Frog that has to do with the Valonqar, which she can only assume ribbit, ribbit. Af- after their long history <laughs> that it's Tyrion. And, and this mm-hmm. is where it's interesting because you say that this is all happening to Cersei because of Tyrion, and that is so true, but is it has anything else been Tyrion's fault directly is the real question, or has most of it been her her terribly shocking and, and focused paranoia and hate toward her brother? Because yes, she, he did kill Tywin, and it has started this chain of events that will lead to what happens to Cersei. Go into Tyrion's chapter and, and see how he thinks about Cersei. Mm-hmm. 
and then start the Cersei chapter and then move into the next one and, and see how she thinks about Tyrion. Right. No, I, I think more than it is Tyrion's fault that this has happened or that anything to Cersei has happened, it is, I think, more so her hatred for her brother. I mean, in this uh, point of view chapter from Cersei, later on, uh, I think she's standing over the bodies, uh, you know, she brings up, oh, he killed my mother now and now my father i'm thinking well she's still hung up over the fact that he killed their mother come on like you're an adult like really do you really think that that Tyrion had anything to do with that i mean purposefully and like she's still bringing it up so she has some real deep-seated hatred of, of of Tyrion here and i think the sensationalism like she created the rivalry i think Tyrion wanted to be a lannister and that's sort of the the tragedy of Tyrion is, you know, he gave his father all those chances. He gives his siblings the the love and care that they deserve, but ultimately Cersei spit, spits on it and puts him on trial for the murder of Joffrey, which he didn't commit. So it's like, Cersei is kind of making her own bed here, but like her inability to let Tyrion off the hook for anything has resulted right. in this yeah. situation. And there, there's a line in this chapter too, when she's thinking through who could be responsible for Tywin's death and it says, for all she knew, this night's foul fruit had been planted and nurtured in High Garden. And I thought to myself, if she could think that the Tyrells were responsible for Tywin's death, how is it that she couldn't possibly even yeah. think that yeah. they were responsible for Joffrey's death? <laughs> this mm. is where the slippery slope begins. Yeah, because yeah. she's she's making these really perceptive choices, I guess, in her head about who who this could have been, and she's. And then she's asking, you know, where Varys is, and this could be Sienna's, this could be Highgarden. But then she's also got these crazy ideas about the monster that Tyrion is, and I think it just it just shows exactly her bias towards towards her brother. We can explain all of this away, though, right? With how it began, the prophecy, the way she was raised, father was never around. She was always spoiled from the beginning. Like we can we can sort of explain away why she's this sort of person, right? Yeah, possibly. I mean, ultimately... Not that there's a real excuse. No. I mean, she's got a twin who doesn't behave at all like she does. So there's that. Right, but he pushes people out of windows. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying he's have better. Have we forgiven him by now? We <laughs> have. We have. Wait, you're still bringing that up, Zach? <laughs> <laughs> An adult male? You're, you're still Get hung up on it. that? We're adults. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but, but I mean, Tyrion's presence in this chapter, again, in um, Feast for Crows... He's not in the book at all, but the very first chapter you get of Cersei has him in it. He he has dialogue, and it's all in Cersei's head, granted. But, I mean, at one point, she can even feel Tyrion's fingers close around her throat, you know, a little bit. And it's just like this this constant presence of the dwarf, even though he's not anywhere to be. He's thousands of miles away, but could he still be in the walls, you know? And as yeah, she that's begins so scary. To, so it's terrifying. scary. But it's interesting as we see Tyrion not doing very well. In, in his chapter, next, yeah, in his chapter, and so yeah. I think it's an interesting. It's interesting to contrast them because if yeah. Cersei had any idea what Tyrion was going through, she would not be so afraid <laughs> yeah, of him. He's putting pushing shit through little bars in his little travel cage. Oh god! Yeah. But that's what's so cool about uh, think about the time that was between this and the last time we saw Tyrion at the end of A Storm of Swords. Maybe there was a small window of thought for people that were reading A Feast for Crows that didn't have Tyrion's falling action from the third book, that Tyrion... Because last time we saw him, he kind of was turning into a monster, right? 
The way yeah. he was just blindly. We we just did that chapter a handful of weeks ago. Remember? And I think Micah talked about this a whole lot too. Uh, not only the imagery, but just the way that his the rest of his personality kind of fell away, and he became something. Like maybe there was a fear that he could have shifted into something, and that the beginnings of that were happening here. And I'd like to think that when the next book came out, there was kind of a sigh of relief that Tyrion. I mean, if anything, it seems like he's sunken into the sort of witty, wry person that he was in the first book. Maybe. Maybe. I will say some of that monster is still there, in my opinion. Um, but we'll we'll obviously talk more about the next chapter. It's kind of a, a judgment call, but unfortunately, and this is the, the great benefit of this chapter is finding out sort of what happens immediately after Tyrion's departure, um, which I like the most. I mean, finding out who has assembled who is and isn't in Cersei's presence. And yes, that moth, which is trapped, which is totally, I mean, I think it's its very clearly a metaphor for something. A moth had gotten into the lantern Sir Boros was holding. She could hear it buzzing and see the shadow of its wings as it beat against the glass. That to me also indicates the hypersensitivity that you have when you're, when you're, you're sort of in shock, you know, like the physical... Yeah body response of being in shock you begin to notice things like that and it's just like you're in you're in the zone george R. martin did such a good job writing that because i think anybody who has suffered any sort of tragedy knows that those first moments when your head's like kind of buzzing like you can kind of fe- feel that with with cersei here i thought he wrote that very well yeah and she has so much that she needs to now figure out that's true knowing that tywin is dead and she makes the comment that when the lion falls, the lesser beasts move in, the jackals and the vultures and the feral dogs. And she starts in part in this chapter to begin to form her own small council. Uh, we see the introduction of Kyburn back into the fold, treating Tywin and, and making sure that he is going to be appropriately taken care of. And we see really the dismissal of Jamie by Cersei for him not wanting to be Hand of the King yeah. and her thinking about then offering it to her uncle, Kevin. And there's just a lot at play here. I, I think she's suspect of, uh, to some extent of the rest of the King's Guard, the, the Kettle Blacks and Sir Boris Blount. And, you know, it's... Uh, Things are going to start to change now politically in King's Landing, given what has now happened to Tywin, and it's going to be up to her to really shape all of this. And it's going to be interesting to watch it from inside of her own mind. And it's been cool to see what will happen be shaped by these first moments after it did happen. Mm -hmm. Just that rebuff with Jamie alone was an unfortunate circumstance because it was definitely something that they had need to talk about being the heirs right in that moment. But they're surrounded by people that were able to overhear. So directly, directly after they're standing in the room that, that Tywin is literally lying dead in and Kyburn, who else hears the, there's a, there's a handful of folks around Kevin Kevin reproaches them. Exactly. Here's, here's her immediately start talking about what to do next. What does Jamie say? He's like, I don't, I don't need to rule. Yeah. I, I barely have one hand. You know, a hand without a hand. Yeah, a hand without a hand, a bad jape sister. Don't ask me to rule. Their uh, uncle heard the rebuff, Kyburn as well, and the Kettle Blacks wrestling their bundle through the ashes. Even the guardsmen heard, Puckins and Hoke, the horse leg and short ear. It will be all over the castle by nightfall. 
Cersei felt the heat rising up in her cheeks. So this is where she's trying to cover it up. She says, rule. I said not of ruling. I shall rule until my son comes of age. Yeah. I mean, let's rate that Ouch. that that cover up right there. I, yeah. I, I, would, I, would, I would give it favorable reviews, right? It's kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if they all didn't know what kind of person she was, then it would have worked better. Right. But if she could go back, think of the things that could have been changed if that moment wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Especially the reaction, the interactions between Kevin Lannister and herself. It's just, I don't know. I feel bad. That's true. That that does set the relationship on a negative note for Kevin. It sets the whole political situation in a strange way, right? Mm-hmm. Because these are the important moments. The hearth is open. There's two dead bodies lying on the bed. And it matters what these people, they are the heirs. It matters how they're handling the situation. And right now, Jamie and Cersei are talking way too loud about things that are way too important and way too light of a manner. This is the kingdom at stake. Basically. Well, I mean, I think that's the unfortunate side of Jamie. And she says in this chapter when she, she's thinking about him going down into that tunnel by himself where the killer could be waiting, that he's always been so rash. And it's definitely his loud voice that sort of ruins things. I mean, he is to blame not only for actually releasing Tyrion from the cells, um, but he's he's essentially got his father's blood on his hands too and Cersei interestingly like I think it was right for her to to be talking about the hand in hushed tones like she was unfortunately it blows up for her but she still is in in many or in a few shocking ways still so naive about things because you know for instance finding Shay in the bed and she tries to convince everybody that he was questioning her. Yeah. That that that's yeah. the only reason his 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 her father never took another woman after their mother died. Like, okay, but but really, like, sure, Tywin Lannister was not characterized by his love for women, let's be real. Um, but it's really naive to think that he never took a woman, and surely the proof is right in front of her. Um, there she believe it, that he was at least not completely numb between beneath I think it's the belly. It's interesting to just the whole way that she talks about Tywin this entire chapter about how he's a lion and you know that's not the way a lion dies and but then she also says um you know it's fitting for a Lannister not fitting for a Lannister to die alone. You know, someone needs to attend his needs in hell. It's interesting how <laughs> to have a on, retinue serving him in hell. Yeah. <laughs> on one hand, I mean, she's got this insane respect for him, and on this other hand, I think she almost has a little bit holds him in contempt a little bit. But yeah, I think it's interesting what she chooses to believe and not believe about about Tywin. I think Shay being in his bed is something that she's just just choosing to ignore, in my opinion. Well, this is where Maester Kyburn rolls in. And makes himself the man <laughs> of the hour. He handles threats really well too. Um, I guess he is he's always had an eye for sort of where the real danger lies. They've taken my chain but not my knowledge. You know? <laughs> it's just kinda like, uh, eh, you know, lo- a loss is a loss, but ultimately the real loss is my life yeah. and that's not coming to Mike, me. Uh, so. Maester Kyburn got introduced to the show years ago. You were like, fades mm, into this guy. <laughs> I may have said that. You're <laughs> <laughs> not, not gonna deny. <laughs> It's sneaky, man. Roll, roll back the audio on on that episode from a couple years ago. And so he makes himself irreplaceable, right? Mm-hmm. He just kind of he kind of hears the commotion. He's like, "Oh, there's. I better go up here and see what's going on." <laughs> and Cersei's like, "I need a maester, damn it! Pycelle is useless. What does she call him? A lick spittle? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. So he's and useless. He's like, he's like, "What's up?" 
hey, I'm a maester, or I, you know, I was. He was like, I fixed Jamie's hand. And she's like, his stump? And he's <laughs> like, yeah. I could not but, save Sir Jamie's hand, it is true. My arts saved his arm, however. Mayhaps his very life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> he calls it his art, and mm-hmm. we know that he truly believes that what he's doing is art. But uh, it's he's a creepy dude, and... <laughs> He is going to be, I mean, we've seen it in the show, the elevation of Meister Kyburn, but I'm, I'm interested in seeing how the book deals with, with this even more because sort of you can read his face, uh, in, in great detail from her interactions with him here. But he does, he serves so well in this moment, right? She sees Shay on the bed and he immediately jumps in and says, perhaps the hand was questioning her. <laughs> he spots her denial. Like from 10 miles away. I bet he'd spotted it at the bottom of the stairs and immediately placates her and is like, oh, yeah, you know, this is probably what was happening, isn't it? And gives her the out because she's not willing to believe that her father was betting Shay. Smart. Perhaps his lordship was questioning the girl about her mistress, Kyburn suggested. Sansa Stark vanished the night the king was murdered, I have heard. Mm-hmm. That's so. Cersei seized on the suggestion eagerly. He was questioning her, to be sure. There can be no doubt. You can see her saying that without taking her eyes off of uh, Shay, just sort of mm-hmm. letting it, you know, work into her mind. And um, I feel like these are the early stages of Kyburn, sort of like. And this is it because this was a, a hard moment for Cersei that he was able to do that, or was it because his suggestion was so deft and the way he sort of worked in there without being a bother? Um, just kind of makes sense. Like he's is he the kind of person embodied that Cersei wants? on her team essentially. I think that's ex- yeah, I think that's exactly it. Like he's he's somebody who's willing to he he's sharp enough, he's willing to do what needs to be done. He's also been disgraced, which I think she feels to some extent at this point. Like he's not perfect, right? He lost his chain. So I think she really identifies with his uh darker side in a way. Um but ultimately he's there to do he's exactly the kind of maester that she needs right now because all the other ones are like spittles. And <laughs> I, I, so I, I think that's that's exactly it. I mean, she's able to create a cover story by his help. Oh, yeah, he was uh, protecting or he was questioning this girl. But then she says, take take Shay's body away. Don't care what you do with it. But no one can know that she was even here to begin with. So she's covering up the story, even though a false story has been created. She's still further pushing out. And whoever's going to enable her in this moment, and we know Kevin won't, is going to end up being, you know, rising pretty quickly to her inner circle. And Jamie, you know, denies her and ruins everything for her in this chapter too. So she's pretty much done with Jamie. She's done with Kevin. Who's left to turn to? I mean, no one in the family. Kyburn's a natural fit. He's a default. Smart guy. Very smart guy. He was probably waiting for this moment, and damn, did he play it right. So we also learn the truth of Shay, I think, kind Mm -hmm. of once and for all. That was very interesting. Uh, for me, because I was thinking again that Cersei had coerced her sort of willingly, knowingly, voluntarily into the things that she said at, at, at Tyrion's trial. And based on Cersei's recollection of the memory, you know, it, it just seemed that Shay was more motivated by possession of, of the, by the vague promise of possession of, of goods and that she'd marry a knight versus an like actual actionable plan like Bronn had for moving forward. Yeah. Shay did what she did almost with less or fewer promises. I can I correct myself there. Uh, fewer promises yeah. than 
anyone else did. Yeah. And it, it, it does sh- uh, shed a more negative light on her. But then again, we don't know what Tywin promised her. And then she leaves in tears. <laughs> she followed them back inside and watched as they bundled the girl up in her father's bloody blankets. Shay. Her name was Shay. They had last spoken the night before the dwarf's trial by combat, after that smiling Dornish snake offered to champion him. Shay had been asking about some jewels Tyrion had given her, and certain promises Cersei might have made. A manse in the city, and a knight to marry her. The queen had made it plain that the whore would have nothing of her until she told them where Sansa Stark had gone. You were her maid. Do you expect me to believe that you, kn- you knew nothing of her plans? She had said. Shay left in tears. Your Cersei has a very deep voice. <laughs> do we do we think that, I mean, at this point she went then to Tywin in utter desperation, found a way to get close to him and asked him for a, something to do? I mean... That's a good question. Or do you think Tywin went to her? It's uh, That's a good question. Again, it, it relates to why Tywin used Shay. Because ultimately, I mean, we saw this in Storm of Swords. It's the ultimate insult to Tyrion uh, to bed his b- beloved. Uh, again, it's the ultimate fuck you to him. Um, but you know, that testimony, did it really push things over the edge to where Tywin could be sure that Tyrion would be dealt with in, in the manner that he wanted? Hmm. Yeah. But think about it. If Tyrion decides not to go up and kill his father, he never finds out what was going on with Shay. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost by happenstance and good writing that this all happens <laughs> because we don't know how long this could have been going on between right. Shay and and Tywin. It, it could have been going on ever since she was, was told camp? to leave by Bronn. Yeah, uh, or yeah. yeah, even as far back as then. We we have no idea. Uh, you know, she she had been in King's Landing for quite some time, uh, and just the fact that we're seeing now the the fact that the two of them had at least gotten together one time who knows how long uh the situation could in fact have been going on for you don't think cersei could have taken this as a maybe a sign that tyrion uh, could have also been sort of being outsmarted by this person the fact that she was also in the bed with her dad and maybe it would have softened her thought of him a little bit more, and it would have softened her approach on all of this a little bit more, and she would have been a little bit more level-headed moving into the next steps because she really is strategically placed to pivot and to take over in a way if she really, really deems it necessary, if that's something that she really wants to do. But uh, the haughtiness in this this drive to push away her strongest allies for fear of them getting their mitts on the royal situation in King's Landing, and I'm talking specifically of the Tyrells, is bound for trouble. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she says uh, when dis- when Jamie pisses her off, she says, I must have been mad to think he could be hand. She would sooner abolish the office of Hand of the King. Like, really? You're going to abolish the the office of the direct protector to your son? That doesn't make any logical sense, but she's not being logical. No, not at all. I mean, she's so paranoid. There's this other moment when the she finds out about the guards sleeping, and she tells them that just let them sleep forever, you know, get rid of them. <laughs> Which I feel like is such a dumb thing for her to do, because she's covering up more evidence from this crime that she's going to want to yeah that she's going to want to investigate right like she's just in this very like rash decision making state of mind and 
now nobody's going to be able to question these guards and see who may have been down there. That's actually a really good point. I didn't even yeah. think about that. The fact that she's going to kill them and, and they possibly have information that's going to be so valuable to her. It, it's really a uh, not a smart decision, a mm-hmm. really kind of quick, rash decision on her part that could actually benefit her in the long run. Right. And it's just, I feel like it, it sets the tone for how she's going to continue to make decisions. Poorly. But it's fun forward. to be inside of her head. Mm-hmm. And to be anchored in King's Landing and to to feel the surroundings, I thought it was just kind of nostalgic getting told about the tunnels again because it, it happened weeks ago. But I feel like it happened a long time ago. Missed those tunnels, to... right? I think it's like the beginning, and I, I know because I've read this book, obviously. But I think it's clear from this chapter that this will be the beginning. Just the way she talks about Makers Hold Fast and how there's a cobalt blue sky and how how the 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 the, the parts kind of work with each other. I think it's a clear beginning to this sort of gothic time spent inside of King's Landing. And I love to think of it in this way. And I love to feel the tunnels. And I love to think about the possibility of, if it wasn't Tyrion, think about if it was like three assassins just hiding in the hallways down below in the mazes. And think about the Jamie climbing down with one arm down, what is it, like 233 rungs or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Possibly getting shanked by these people. This is a scary place. And scary things happening. The king's hand right. has just been stabbed or just been shot with the crossbow. A woman has been choked with a chain. It's it's I don't know. It's it's cool. It's it's very cool. It's very cool. I wish yeah. th- this part of the of the book was would have been captured on the show. This would have been a really crazy sequence. Seeing her getting woken up and then like walked really ominously and like quickly with the scary music led up to the chamber and seeing the hallway and like guessing where everything came from. It would have been so cool. And not only that, but now you have somebody who has gone missing who knows those tunnels in and out and could be a massive threat to. Cersei and her family moving forward. Well, and the people who are investigating now they know about these tunnels as well. Like it's it's almost going back to the Targaryens and killing everyone who built this place. Yeah, uh, you know, it's the more people that know about that, the less safe anyone will be in the Red Keep. But it is very noticeable that Varys is missing, and she actually sends for him. And as that is happening, she learns about. Tyrion being on the loose. And so now everything starts to come together in her mind and she realizes that he in fact is the one that is responsible for all of this. And, you know, the chapter ends very much as it began uh, in not in a full dream state, but as she closes her eyes, uh, she experiences Tyrion choking her and, and, you know, what is to be believed is, tightening around her neck and and possibly killing her and and so that also ties back to what Zach mentioned about this, this sort of prophecy from Maggie the Frog and I don't know that it has to be a literal you know tightening of of his hands around her neck you know it could be somewhat figurative by actions that he takes um I don't know that he ultimately is going to be the one to do it but uh I guess only time will tell yeah. Yeah. And their personalities clash so hard. They Cersei do. is not completely to blame. Tyrion is an asshole to her. He's very you know what I mean? He he he's condescending. He probably always has been. He's always been a heavy reader and he uses his knowledge against her, I think. So her sharp, sort of brash personality versus his knowing japes, it just it rubs such the wrong way. And uh it's bred this situation between the two of them late in their adult years with so much other things at stake. 
uh, it's led them to a really dangerous spot because we move an entire book later to Tyrion's mind, and his chapter begins in this manner. It says, he drank his way across the narrow sea. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to travel. (laughs) It's the perfect opening for this chapter. Two very different people leading into each other's situations. Mm-hmm. One of them's having a good time. The other, well, I don't know about. I don't good know about time. good time. One no. of them's dream. One of them, yeah, is just trying to stay right end, right side up. Actually, I guess they're both the same. After all of this time, here's a bit of wisdom from Tyrion Lannister: the world is full of wine. Ugh. That's true. I was kind of wondering what what you guys thought about Tyrion in this chapter because he's obviously such a disaster. But I don't know if you guys feel any sympathy towards what he's going through or if you just think that it's he's just kind of messed up i i mean look if he's he's having trouble what this chapter does what the beginning of this chapter does for me uh initially is reminds me that i never want to get on a boat that's it's (laughs) it's this chapter there's a samuel chapter coming up uh which does the same like well there goes our ideas for the live show cruise Eric. yeah (laughs) oh sorry working on that for years the seasickness i mean in in hundreds of words and adjectives and verbs it's just not something that i care to ever experience there's dramamine Tyrion. oh there is that's true they don't have that all right Maybe I can get by. But ultimately, I mean, Tyrion can't keep his food, even if he had an appetite, which he doesn't because he just killed his father and he's dealing with the emotional repercussions. Even if he did, he couldn't keep it up. Even the wine that he drinks keeps coming up and he lays in it because he just doesn't care anymore. And it's like the world's he's, full of wine. he's in a drug fueled, uh, you know, emotional state, ba- like shock himself. I mean, he's in a very similar position to Cersei in a way, but also he's on the sea. Except that so. he's a murderer. And I know Cersei's done some terrible things too, but sure. Tyrion's dealing with his own actions right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he, he ultimately, and this is said in this chapter, like he, he basically had to shoot his father after his father used those words. Those words he's so hung up on, where do whores go? Um, but ultimately, like he it pretty much, I think, Tyrion reasons in his state that it was ultimately almost self-defense because if Tywin had seen that his threats were empty, he would have grabbed the crossbow from him. Uh, you know, he had to shoot Tywin after basically Tywin used that word again. And, you know, unfortunately, he is dealing with it. I think he's not, he hasn't dealt with it yet, but it's it's ultimately kind of a situation of, well, where do we go now? And you do wonder where he's going. You wonder what the purpose of this all is. Varys, there's only a brief conversation before he's packed into a a barrel. You're just like, what, you know, what is the future here for for Tyrion? And the fact that he's so drinking and uh, it's like the only, but it's in some ways, it's the only way to keep him active while he's doing this. Because, I mean, he might as well just lay down and die. But that's kind of what he's doing. He's just in an intermediate phase for the first part of this chapter you can't really do anything but drink there's not a whole lot to do on a boat it's probably well, not don't that you think wide. he feels some level of remorse for what he's done maybe if it's not you know outwardly expressed you, mm-hmm. you still have to remember where we are that, that really at the end of storm of swords it is the fall of the lannisters and we're in these two chapters demonstrate it really really well because you had cersei who you know, learns of her father's death, the interaction with Jamie. And that chapter, you're left wondering, how is she going to reassert her family's power and maintain that power moving forward? Here you have Tyrion, who has done so much good for his family and not gotten any level of appreciation for it. Right. 
we've come to really love him as a character, his his wit, his sarcasm. He's a fun character to be around. But yet here it is, you know, and, and we mentioned earlier the wait time that people had to wait so long to get a, a, a Tyrion chapter after A Storm of Swords. He's struggling. He's struggling mightily. He's turned more so to drinking than maybe he normally would uh, in, in in prior books. And he's just downtrodden, maybe depressed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he, he really just doesn't know what his future holds. And he's not in a comfort zone. And Tyrion's not a killer. I mean, I, I he killed his dad. But you know what I mean? Like, he's not cut out no, not, for this. Not usually. But I, I, I think he's still a little bit, you know, he speculated when he in the chapter when he killed Tywin that he had become the monster that everyone said he was. This is something that I think has carried over through the chapters. I, I see him in this chapter as, you know, a little bit of a monster. We want to see the wits. We want to see the humor because he's our favorite. He's the imp. But there's a couple things, namely, you know, if you ask if he has remorse uh, there's a scene in this chapter where he sees a pike and he says, oh, you know, Cersei's got to be up there. Her head on that pike flies buzzing in, in her golden hair. But 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 then also, oh, Jamie's got to go right next to her. Of course, he's still casually thinking about the death of his family. You know, I don't I would I would argue that means he's not remorseful to them and he doesn't ruminate necessarily on the pain that they must be going through at this moment. Mm, um, yeah. at all. When he hears that Cersei's put a price on his head, he he laughs. He says, I should have expected it. You know, I think he's still, unfortunately for us, trapped in sort of a, a rut here where he's a little bit more homicidal, a little bit less remorseful, a little bit less of the Tyrion that we're used to. Could be the drugs, but I, I think in general, his character arc has, has sort of, there's been a turning point. They've gone through so much, Cersei and Tyrion, and Tyrion, especially after Blackwater. Think about uh, all specifically in the the books that we've read, not to mention their entire lives. They've gone through so much, and I know in this world people go through less, and a lot of the times they go through more. But let's focus on these characters because every situation is individual, right? Let's mm-hmm. just respect it for what it is. Tyrion and Cersei, after all that they've gone through, are going through this. On top of all of that, the stakes are so high. Cersei's bastard son is the king. Mm. Her last bastard son was the king, but then he was murdered at his own wedding. Her husband, the king, who treated her like shit, was also murdered because of her. We learned from the last chapter. It was part of the plan. Mm. And now Tyrion has murdered his father and the woman that he loved after the other woman that he loved was passed around by possibly a score of guardsmen for money so Tyrion being in the state of mind thinking homicidally about Cersei thinking homicidally about about Jaime sort of casually in his mind I don't think that it's okay but I think that it makes sense because the stakes are so high we're talking about kingdoms being ruled Tyrion is being taken somewhere he's taken to Illyrio Mopatis who has so much power in the place that he is and where he is in Pentos Mm -hmm. and not to mention what we'll eventually come to find and what we sort of touched on in the show these stakes are so high and these people are so important that I just feel like it's, it's hard to sort of pull ourselves out of our minds. But I, what you were saying, Eric, totally makes sense. Like he, he is shifting, but I think we, we should be able to understand why he's shifting, right? Because they've gone through so damn much and all of this matters to so many people and the whole, the whole world really like kingdoms matter. Tyrion makes a comment to the washing girl later in this chapter. He basically says like, we could find a couple hundred other people like you just here in yeah. Illyrio's manse. 
but there's no one else here like me. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and that's not necessarily genuine self-aggrandizement. We know, we know how low Tyrion thinks of himself in that right. moment. So, that so was there's that. Mainly directed toward the fact of his lineage and what he has to offer because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and ultimately, I mean, he, he sort of, one of his plays, right? And this is brought up by Illyrio, but also while he's still on the boat in the beginning of the chapter, you know, he's thinking of Dorne. He's thinking of the wall as an option. After all, Old Bear said that one nice thing about him that one time. Um, but Dorne, I mean, he's thinking of basically following up what the Red Viper wanted him to do and to go champion Marcella's cause over Tommen. And, you know, he's thinking about how it would spite his sister. Uh, and, but ultimately that would, that would be in a way his championing his own family again. You know, if he were to, if he were to go to work towards the Marcella for queen of Westeros cause, um, that would be in a way being true to his roots, even though he's just become a kinslayer. Um, then later in the chapter, of course, it's pointed out that actually raising her up for queen would put a target on her. And he says, oh, yeah, I guess I should know that, too. So there's so many ways that this could go. There's so many ways of Tyrion sort of divorcing himself from his own family that I think this chapter sets up so well. I agree that this is just it's very strange to see Tyrion in this sort of mood with this sort of mentality. It's it's not what we've come to know and love about him. Uh, But going back to the idea of him being remorseful, uh, maybe that's a bit of a stretch uh, because you know, he's just his mentality as he is thinking back through everything that's happened in King's Landing. He mentions about his father, how his bowels opened up after he shot him. And he says, even in his dying, he found a way to shit on me. And that's somebody who clearly has no real remorse for what he has done. He's still thinking that despite the fact that I killed the guy, he still found a way to uh, you know, make light of me uh, at the end of the day, and yeah. to me, this is this is a a chapter for Tyrion, or maybe it'll be a series of chapters for Tyrion, where you he he has to find his footing again. He has to you know, figure out for himself what direction uh, he is going to to go in, in as much as he has a choice. I, I'm not saying that he's going to have much of a choice, mm-hmm. uh, but. He's now in the east, and the the slate has been wiped clean for the most part. And yes, he has a bounty on his head, but he, from what we can tell right now, is going to be protected. So he just needs to, you know, and, and we can talk about the end of the chapter when we get there, figure out if this is what he ultimately wants to do. And I think we'll start to see more signs of the Tyrion of old if he's able to kind of get back on his feet again. This is just a low point for him right now. What a place to have a low point, though. He's inside of Illyrio's manse, and he, he meets Illyrio, and what does he call him, a dead sea cow? <laughs> <laughs> I had the, yeah. A manatee, basically, right? Here we go. Above, here's the quote. Above him he loomed, a grotesque fat man <laughs> with a forked yellow beard, holding a wooden mallet. So he's actually the one letting him out of the crate, uh, holding a wooden mallet and an iron chisel. His bedrobe was large enough to serve as a tourney pavilion, <laughs> but its loosely knotted belt had come undone, exposing a huge white belly and a pair of heavy breasts that sagged like sacks of soot covered with coarse yellow hair. He reminded Tyrion of a dead sea cow that had once washed up in the caverns under Casterly Rock. Mm. Oh. And then Tyrion has this thought, and I thought it was a an interesting exchange because obviously in the show 
Ferris replaces a lot of the interactions we have, and they they sum it up in interesting ways. And I don't want to really, really talk about that, but I did did want to mention for a second this exchange between he and Ferris that I thought was so. I, don't, I can't really think of the motion that goes into it, but it's it's right after it happens. Do you guys remember this when he was in King's Landing and they were just about to get loaded onto the ship, the ship that mm-hmm. he realizes that he was a hero of a battle and like a uh, it's in Blackwater, and um, he tells Varys, he says, after he tells him that he killed Tywin. Right, he's like, you shouldn't have done that. And he goes, I killed Shay too. He confessed to Varys. He goes, you knew what she was. Just that's what he says. They're that close in that moment. You knew what she was. Yeah, I did, but I never knew what he was. Varys tittered, and now you do. When we think about Varys, Illyrio, these men, if we backtrack Varys and Tyrion's friendship and sort of go into that moment and then go forward into where Varys has taken Tyrion. I think we've picked up as a reader by the time we reach this chapter that he sees Tyrion as an equal that he's trying to evolve in this entire process. So the way Tyrion's getting treated in this chapter, right, guys, didn't we expect the kind of interaction that happens at the end of this chapter to eventually happen to Tyrion? And now we feel like it's coming into motion. Didn't we expect after all this time for him to get introduced to this sort of greater thing. Not that we saw it coming, but now that he's here and he's walking around Illyrio's mansion, it's obvious there's a task at hand and that Tyrion was basically being vetted and picked to do this, right? He's surrounded by what he doesn't immediately realize are going to become his, possibly the best allies he's ever had. Um, They're rich like he used to be. I mean, he's essentially like when he, and this is stated in this chapter, when he says, oh, I have, and it's like, well, actually, I have nothing. Um, Illyrio has what Tyrion has lost, essentially. Not only money um, and very nice things, but purpose. Uh, you know, this man's all about purpose. I love Illyrio in this chapter. But like, Varys has ushered Tyrion, much in the way we see the the friendship between them and the show grow. Um, but really, it's this belief that Varys has in Tyrion's ability to lead or rule or rather, you know, be and serve an advisory capacity, you know, how he ends up doing. He has this purpose that Tyrion himself is not in this chapter aware of yet. Um, He has this value that he hasn't yet found in himself, I guess. And and I go back to when they mention the the orange embers glowing in the mouth of an iron dragon. And, And Zach, this ties directly to what you were just saying, the end of this chapter. You know, there's a reason why. They mentioned that they mentioned it in his escape chapter and they mentioned it again in this chapter. And I think it's all meant to signal the fact that he does have a greater purpose, that he is ultimately going to align himself with the Targaryens. And what that all means, we still have yet to find out. But it should be a signal that Tyrion now has a different path to travel than the rest of his family back in King's Landing. Yeah, now he's kind of free from what he ha- you know, he's free from his family essentially. Yeah. So he has no other ties or obligations like he may have had in the past. I feel like George R. R. Martin gave us this moment of reflection underneath the cherry tree with strong wine and Tyrion Lannister's thoughts to prepare ourselves for this transition. I feel like this entire stroll and the things he was saying and the 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 sarcastic and really rude things he was thinking just because he can and just because the folks don't understand the common tongue around him asking where do whores go this reoccurring theme 
that has picked up in this chapter. What a strange question to ask. We know that why he's asking it. That was Tywin's last thing, wherever whores go. And we understand why he's asking it. But Tyrion knows better, no matter how drunk he is. He he knows just not to walk up, where do whores go? And just ask people that line. It's strange. All of this is just kind of like dreamlike, almost. He's walking around this beautiful place. Let me just read a little snippet. And it's much prettier than this paragraph. It says, Across the pool stood a brick wall 12 feet high, with iron spikes along its top. Beyond that was the city. A sea of tiled rooftops crowded close around a bay. He saw square brick towers, a great red temple, a distant manse upon a hill. In the far distance, sunlight shimmered off deep water. Fishing boats were moving across the bay, their sails riffling in the wind, and he could see the masts of larger ships poking up along the shore. He was in a cell in our last chapter. And then in a barrel. (laughs) (laughs) What must seem like a paradise after the boat. I mean, the boat had docked, and it was still rocking back and forth, and he still didn't know which way was up. And after a little bit more of that, he essentially passes out and wakes up in a like on this bed. There's this this down goose feather bed that turns him on. It's so perfect. And this shag carpet and this wall and this pool and these casks of wine that exist in this cellar that he finds. He must have a sixth sense for where the wine is because he finds it so quickly upon roaming. But this whole place is is almost i mean i would equate it to heaven it's it's maybe uh, a third uh, uh supernatural way of saying you've done the right thing son because ultimately it's even though tyrion will not allow himself to be at peace he's very wary of illyrio and that's fair he should be from what he knows but it's really in a way remarkably comforting i think to the reader that Tyrion can afford to be such an asshole to these people. Um, but I, of course, do not like uh, what he is saying and thinking, as we mentioned before. I think he's just doing it because he can. He is. Just letting off some steam. I mean, I wanted to talk about this uh, this woman, this bed, bed warmer, I guess the, she's referred to, um, who's not the first person to ask. And Illyrio has said, you know, you can have any of my servants that you wish. But he ultimately tells this girl that he's going to strangle her like he notices that she doesn't like him which he says well at least you know at least the other women pretended to like me he notices that and then jumps on it and threatens to strangle her because she doesn't like him just to see her fear yeah he like delights in it like he loves the fact that she has this terrified look on her face that's so horrible when when saying that he's changed his mind and he is going to sleep with her doesn't really evoke enough of a response in her he says he's going to strangle her and grins and then there's the fear that he likes and it's just like dude who are you yeah that's the moment where you're like Tyrion is messed up right now yeah well right right I mean he's sort of I mean he just killed the hand of the king right yeah he did I mean yeah he feels power but at the same time he's never been respected in his whole life He's, he's a Lannister for crying out loud the son of Tywin the great the bold brother of Jamie, brother of the Queen, and and no, you know the savior of the Blackwater and King's Landing, and no one has ever really feared him because he's an imp, and he's always been disrespected, and he's he's taking this pleasure in this in this woman really, and uh, getting fear from her. It's just it's it's one of his definite definite downfalls. But I feel like he doesn't truly think that way um, deep down. But it's 
it just doesn't really matter because these are his actions. This is what he's doing. This is what he's sure. thinking right now. But I mean, he's continuing to, in a way, I mean, he's descending, even though he's in this nice place where he maybe doesn't have to fear for his life immediately. Um, he's still sort of descending a little bit into monsterhood. Don't you think he's just fighting back against the world a little bit? Because everything has just sort of been without his decision, getting put in the black cells against his decision. Like he made a decision to do what he did to Shay and Tywin, but after that, the decision was quickly taken from him because he was hammered into a barrel, and yeah. he he had no say in where he was going, and now he has no real say. He can't leave the manse. I think he's just kind of fighting back against the world. Yeah, I think it's what you had said earlier, uh, where we we can understand where he's coming from. We get why he's reacting this way, and sympathize isn't the right word, but. You know, we we under we get it. Whether or not what he says is awesome, which it's not, but I mean, we get it. He's been through a yeah. lot. Yeah. So here he is meeting with Illyrio, this someone who's just speaking so lightheartedly about this situation. And Tyrion's just—I don't know—I think he just wants a little bit more drama after the things that have happened. I mean, I mean, this is the best. Illyrio laughs far more often and far harder than he sh- perhaps should, given his immense size. Tyrion thinks he's going to burst. When he laughs. And it's just like, who who is this guy? Of course, he has this grotesque habit of stroking his beard. Tyrion can't stand. But he's almost the perfect... These interactions, and I'm I'm glad they're various in the show, but in the book, you know, it's, it's, it's a treat to read between them. And especially with this, I guess, all of a sudden mystery. I know, Micah, you just mentioned about needing drama or wanting drama, but this imagined poisoning that happens over dinner while they're talking is I just found to be the most fascinating and unique thing that I think I've like read so far um, from, from this read through. But you can certainly understand his level of skepticism. You know, he's in a foreign land. He found these mushrooms uh, just prior and kept them, <laughs> kept them. He saw like, just Oh, it's case. a sign from the seven. There's seven mushrooms like power up. If you're playing Super <laughs> Mario Brothers. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I, I just have a hard time, though, understanding why the level of skepticism, because clearly Varys sent him here with a purpose, and he wouldn't send him to Illyrio for Illyrio to poison him and, and kill him uh, you know, within hours of his arrival well here's here's what Tyrion thinks and this is from the book he thinks to use me for his profit it was all profit with the merchant princes of the free cities spice soldiers and cheese lords his lord father called them so he's still using tywin's advice for for worldliness to live uh should a day ever dawn when illyrio mapatis saw more profit in a dead dwarf than a live one Tyrion would find himself packed into another wine cask by dusk <laughs> so he's got a point i think in that even though this is a safe place, it's not necessarily a permanent safe place. And Tyrion, I think at this point, even though there's Varys, who is mysteriously absent from the second half of this chapter, he still would can only trust himself at this point. At the um, same time, Ver- or Tyrion, even when he's not sure if the mushrooms are poisoned or not, he still is kind of like, wow, they do smell really good. Like, yeah. this could be that's, a way that's out That's the most for me. terrifying part of this chapter, essentially, because Tyrion is faced with the the very easy alternative but towards living life. And it's kind of attractive, you know, to after sleeping in that comfortable bed to just, like, go quickly. I mean, I don't know. It's, in- it's interesting. But he's been sent back until his task is done, a la 
Gandalf the White. <laughs> we have work to do. I did want to bring up one more thing that Illyrio says that I think is interesting that contrasts with what we just read in the Cersei chapter about how he talks about Westerosi people take too much stock in their sigil. And I think that it's interesting that he makes that comment after we spent the last chapter hearing Cersei say over and over again that a lion shouldn't do this or a lion can't be this or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Kind of like diminishing their family to a commodity. And I think Tyrion is feeling that way a little bit as well. So I thought that was a cool comment. And even he's thinking much of Casterly Rock. Mm-hmm. And Illyria says the way to Casterly Rock is not through Dorne. Tyrion was beginning to suspect that a certain freckled washerwoman knew more of the common speech than she pretended. It was, after all, to this washerwoman that Tyrion, and I was reading back and I was thinking, man, did he say it on the boat? Was the scrubbing boy a spy? What's going on? But this washerwoman, it turns out, and she's the one that he he actually didn't ask until it was too late after she was gone, where to whores go? He talked about Dorne. He talked about the wall in front of her, and she is clearly... Illyrio's informant. But just like Varys, Illyrio has these people who are there to inform, collect information, and, and, and divulge it. In fact, I found comfort in how similar Varys uh, is to how Illyrio appears in this moment. But I mean, ultimately, what Illyrio points out to Tyrion is, you know, there is there's another option. Even though it's not overtly stated, we see Tyrion's, well, Illyrio sees Tyrion's face light up when he says, a dragon with three heads. Tyrion, yeah. Danny, dream team. Who's the third? Mm. I have ideas. It depends, yeah, it depends on the theories <laughs> you believe. <laughs> but I love this this back and forth at the end, this sort of beginning to uh, these thoughts in the East, whether or not Stannis will give Tyrion sort of safeness uh, in Westeros if he's the one to take over or what, whatever happens in Doran's ends up rising, and we, mm. we'll get more into that as the read-through goes, um, sort of cascades. But at this point in Tyrion's chapter, we already know a lot about the Dornish storyline and what sort of plans that are happening there, and even later on in this book, we'll, we'll find out more of that. So I think this read-through is really positioned interestingly because um, it, it's very congruent, right? From Cersei to this, after what we've gone through, it just feels like, isn't this already set up to be the coolest A Song of Ice and Fire book? Yes. Old Town... Vermeer six skins, the prophet, captain of guards. It's crazy. To, to this. Well, like a great feast, such that lays before Tyrion at the end of the chapter, our owns uh, that we have and the ones that we've collected from our listeners are also like a great feast. And we will sup upon them and their delightfulness <laughs> and their butteriness <laughs> and their garlicness. Uh, and right they're not poison. And their non poisonousness uh, right now. Uh, I'll, I'll go first. So for Cersei, my Cersei one's easy and it's kind of cheap and you're not going to like it. Um, but uh, Sir Osmond uh, Kettle Black has two brothers, Osney and Osfried. And uh, I'm going to give my own to the Os brothers. <laughs> All right. Just just because just they have alive. some. They just have, you know, just for being alive, just hey, for existing. They're your All owns right. to give, right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Your owns to give. Uh, of course, I love that chapter. Everything else that happens in it is great. But the uh, the Oz brothers sell swords in King's Landing. They're siblings. <laughs> uh, I can go next. Um, I'm going to give my own to Tyrion, I think, for the Cersei chapter, for just being so present in her thoughts and mm. for this monster that she is turning him into in her head um, and how it essentially begins and ends with Tyrion. I feel like the Kingsguard 
and really and everyone in the room for keeping their cool as much as they did kind of deserves an own in this chapter because the, the, the hand of the king had just been murdered and uh, they were all solemn and sort of dignified uh, as they should have been. But I think the real own goes to Kyburn for just really <laughs> turning the situation to his advantage. Yeah. I'm going to give my own to Cersei. Of for, course. No, not of course. Uh, for her comment, uh, we mentioned it during the discussion, but when she says, <laughs> I'm the only true son he ever had. <laughs> oh, That's good. I thought you were going to yeah. give it to Doddering Lickspittle. <laughs> that would have been a good one, too. Or have them sleep forever. Yes, 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 yes. Cersei did have... I, I, this was a great debut point of view chapter for her. What uh, I'm interested in seeing the diversity of, of everyone's zones for, for this chapter, but my own goes to the wine cellar. Um, okay. Because it looks pretty extensive, and uh, there's everything in there for, for many men. A Tyrion can drown himself down there if he wishes. I thought about that. The quote is, there was enough wine there to keep him drunk for a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Uh, I have like 75 owns. I'm going to give my own to not Tyrion, to Varys when he says, uh, when they're kind of talking about what happened after they were going through the tunnels, and he says, you should not have climbed climbed that ladder reproachfully. I'm going to give my own to Illyrio uh, for when he says... The world is one great ah. web, and a man dare not touch a single strand, lest all the others tremble. More wine? <laughs> That's my own, too. Awesome. Same own. High five. Yeah. Him. We shared it. I thought he was maybe talking about his best friend, Varys. The spider. Well, it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. What if they're all spiders? Good job, us. No Tyrion owns. <laughs> <laughs> that was a tough chapter to own. We've had a lot of really serious moments from Tyrion Lannister and like I said earlier in this episode, this was sort of reminiscent to the earlier, more immature Tyrion and his mind isn't the same but his mind went to a comfortable place. There was lots of lines along the lines of kinsling is dry work. It gives men, a man, a thirst. I'm interested to dig into your owns listeners at home. Let's begin on Facebook where brave men and women have scrawled upon our wall with their owns. We're going to hear from Mark Mahal first, who says, Cersei, own to Jamie for dealing with guilt and adversity the only way he knows how, by being a total douche. <laughs> <laughs> and Tyrion, own goes to Illyrio for owning Tyrion the entire chapter. Whether it be the mushroom trick or making fun of Westerosi sigils. Yeah, that was great. Fun to see someone call a character out on their bullshit. Mm-hmm. That was good. Next, we have on Facebook, Jesse Naftali, who says, Cersei own for the Cersei chapter goes to Cersei for owning herself. Her mind is the biggest <laughs> enemy. And how That's ironic it. that she pins Tywin's death on the Tyrells at first when Tyrion is the actual killer and pin Joff's death on Tyrion when we all know who the real masterminds were. Also second owned to the beginning of the twisted friendship between Cersei and Kyburn. All thanks to Maester Pycelle for being so useless. You yeah, dug your own little... grave, Pycelle. Yeah. <laughs> oh <laughs> Did it my to yourself. God. And then she says, Tyrion Owen goes to George R. R. Martin for not being afraid to make us detest one of his most beloved characters as Ty- Tyrion as Tyrion begins his downward spiral. Disowned oh. to the show for leaving out Tyrion's entire motivation and development. And as this chapter notes for the first time, his ultimate question, where do the horrors go? Mm-hmm. Reads mm. Palazzo. His Cersei 
goes to Queen Cersei's ego that after only three days of ruling is so big, it's a wonder her head fits through the doors of the Red Keep. And the Tyrion own goes to Tyrion for his first impression of Illyrio Mopatis, a rotting sea cow that washed up in the caverns under Casterly Rock. Keely Marks says my owns for both chapters goes to Obsession, which owned both Cersei and Tyrion's minds. Cersei has been obsessed with her paranoid distrust of Tyrion since receiving her prophecy from Maggie the Frog. But since Joffrey's death, it has gone into overdrive. Now, armed with the first actual hard evidence that he killed someone she loved with secrecy and deception, her obsession has only made her more paranoid, and not just of him, but of anyone that might have helped him. Anyone, that is, but the one man who actually orchestrated the escape, Jamie. Yep. Tyrion, on the other hand, is being owned by his obsession with Tysha. His usual quick wits are reduced to revealing his whole plan for his future to one of Illyrio's people and asking everyone he sees where whores go like an adult version of that kid's book, Are You My Mother? <laughs> oh my God. I love Are You My Mother. This chapter was a children's book, but for adults. Are Dear Bulldozer, mother? turned off with no one in it. Are You My Mother? <laughs> I like how that the Westerosi girl was like, wherever people pay for them. Yeah, just like everywhere else. <laughs> Places that accept money, man. <laughs> Emily Bryce on Facebook owned to Cersei's very active internal thought. She is just as crazy and paranoid as other characters' chapters make her seem. Her brain goes 300 miles per hour and in too many different directions. I love being in there, watching the chaos for the first time. And this is spelled out, smiley modicon. Mm, <laughs> Haven't read the other book yet. Wanted to finish the fourth first, and I'm so close. Can't wait to read Tyrion again. So thank you for your Cersei own, Emily. Uh, Jennifer Bandle says, For Cersei, the fact alone that Cersei is now a point of view character is own worthy. Her descent into madness is a beauty to behold. Ooh. And for Tyrion, I'm re- I'm glad I'm reading this because I wanted this to be my own, but I didn't pick it. Uh, for Tyrion, it is going to the line, <laughs> is this Dornish wine? It reminds me of a certain snake I knew, a droll fellow, till a mountain fell on him. Yeah. <laughs> but then I read this, a goose down feather bed so soft it felt as if he had been swallowed by a cloud. Where can I get one of those? Wherever whores go. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, wherever sleep number mattresses are sold. Cameron Ross, Cersei Owen, goes to Jamie for braving the unknown by going through the fireplace to explored the tunnels. Yeah. It couldn't have been easy climbing down the ladder with one hand. No, absolutely not. Tyrion own goes to Illyrio Mopatis for the line, You, Westerosi, are all the same. <laughs> you sow some beasts upon a scrap of silk, and suddenly you are lions or dragons or eagles. I can take you to a real lion, my little friend. The prince keeps a pride in his menagerie. Would you like to share a cage with him? Tywin gets one, too, for still being a lingering strong figure in his children's minds, even in death. Hashtag, just can't wait to be king. Hashtag, Tywin's... Midas bowels. <laughs> yeah, there, there, thank you. <laughs> Alma's own for the Cersei chapter goes to the foreshadowing. She dreams of being naked in front of everybody, then remembers Tywin parading his father's mistress naked through the streets and making her tell everyone she was a harlot. Yeah. The own of the Tyrion chapter goes to Illyrio's wine cellar. Yeah. I wonder what the wines from Yeti and Shy are like. Me too. Those Yetitian wines have got to be crazy. Still on Facebook, Jason Nasra, owned for Cersei, goes to Jamie for beginning to see Cersei for what she's become and calling her on it. Quote, a hand without a hand? 
Bad Jape, sister, don't ask me to rule. Rule? I said not of ruling. I shall rule until my son comes of age. I don't know who I pity more, her brother said. <laughs> Tom into the Seven Kingdoms. I, yeah, that was that was sad. He deserved the slap, I thought. But anyway, for, Ter- for Tyrion 1, then Jason adds, My own goes to Illyria when, in his conversation about Tyrion wanting to kill himself, he says, If you would sooner drown in wine, say the word, and it shall be done, and quickly. Drowning cup by cup wastes time and wine both. A man after Tyrion's heart. <laughs> Truly. Poor Dantos. And then our last Facebook own comes from Karen Smith, who says, Own to Cersei, for Cersei chapter goes to the Lannister guardsman Red Lester for being named after a British cheese. Delicious. <laughs> wow. Also connecting the two chapters. Cheese. Huh? Mm-hmm. Huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On Twitter, Joshua Murphy, my own for Cersei, one, goes to the introductory sentence. She dreamt she sat the... <laughs> That'd be a strange dream if she dreamt she shat the Iron Throne. <laughs> okay. But what if she dr- not, not, enough not of in this series? Yeah. Think about it. Like that's chapter. that's yeah, that's a whole brings a whole new meaning to what happened to her anyway. In Tywin? She, she dreamt she shat I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> she dreamt she sat the Iron Throne high above them all. Yeah, right. And oh. Jada on Twitter for Tyrion Chep. My own goes to Lirio for waking up Tyrion by drowning cup by cup, waste time and wine both. It's a start. And their Cersei own goes to Tyrion for showing all the Lannisters what a hypocrite Lord Tywin was. Betting Shay? Sheesh. Sheesh. And Jerry in Laosis. I don't know how to say that. Laosis? Laos? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Jerry? Yeah. yeah. So just say Jerry. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and Jerry on Twitter, own for the Tyrion chapter goes to Illyrio's mushroom head fuck with Tyrion. <laughs> <laughs> and for the Cersei chapter goes to the moth in Sir Boris Blount's lap, lamp. It must be important for George to mention it three times. It's got to be. I'm pretty sure that's the moth that's its Those wings beat and moths. halfway across the world. Yeah. There's a tsunami. Also ice moths. Jules on Twitter. Uh, Cersei, Jamie owned Cersei. A one-handed uh, hand would be funny, even though it wouldn't be a novelty. Hashtag Oris Baratheon. Ooh, good memory. And uh, Jules's Tyrion own. Illyrio's cooks own the ones from King's Landing. Maybe they burned Tyrion's bacon in the wrong way. Kelsey on Twitter says, own to Cersei for being the only true son Tywin ever had. And then... Brendan Fish owns for these chapters goes to Tyrion for calling Illyrio a rotting sea cow. I think that that's Brendan's first own that he's ever sent us, by the way. Thanks, Brendan. Brienne of Tarth sends a raven our way with owns. Brienne's mm. owns are thus. Tyrion's own is hypothetical. It goes to all the shenanigans Tyrion the wine bag and Aaron the wine bag could have gotten into. <laughs> <laughs> Cersei oh, own man. goes to Cersei herself for being just as paranoid and arrogant on the inside. As she seems on the outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. Like a tauntaun. Janice Tillery, own for Cersei chapter, goes to the crazy internal monologue in her head. Just wait, only the beginning to her insane thoughts. And John Webster, okay guys, I just finished reading the Cersei Tyrion chapters. Now I'm totally on board with combined order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Hashtag. Hashtag, OMG, this is awesome. Nice. Mm. And uh, wrapping up Twitter, Susan Stacy. uh, Cersei, the Iron Throne owned Cersei in her dreams. The throne is said to cut the unworthy who sit it. Oh, I forgot about that. That's that's concerning. And Tyrion own, 
Magister Illyrio owned Tyrion with his garlic and butter mushrooms. Hope he won't be repaid in kind. And then we move to Patreon. Ash T says, own to Uncle Ray for getting me to kind of like Cersei. I may never love her, but I look forward to her chapters and seeing her unique perspective. Yeah. We received a dazzling handful of emails. This is a small selection. JS wrote to us. JS said, Cersei own goes to Ned Stark. As in this chapter, we learned that he caused Cersei to move to kill Robert too early. She had known that Renly and Stannis would have been troubled during Joffrey's eventual assassination and wanted to take care of them first. Stark's meddling inadvertently led to Robert's death, but he may have just as easily saved Renly and Stannis from other Lannister plots. Tyrion's goes to late Magister Ordello, who recently tried the dish you only taste once. It is not known if he was murdered or suicidal, but as Illyrio puts it, why die with a taste of blood in your mouth when it could be butter and garlic? Good point. Good point. Fair point. Joe Schaefer, not JS, or maybe he's got... <laughs> Maybe he just wants alter two ego. <laughs> these guys always these guys always write in pairs. This is lovely. Yes. Uh, his own for Cersei has to go to those two jailers. It's not their fault that Varys drugged them. Uh. A sympathy own for them being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I love how Cersei immediately jumps from, oh, my father is dead, to I'm the lion of House Lannister and I will be the next Tywin. <laughs> and his own for Tyrion goes to that little boy who was kind enough to leave clothes for Tyrion. I wonder whatever happened to him. Remember, Illyrio is a liar. Huh. Mm. The Sphinx is the riddle. Christina Klein, uh, in a message to us titled, Sibling Rivalry Gone Horribly Awry. I love this. I love how you can do a subject for email and then still do an awesome email. Uh, Varys gets the owns, she begins. In the Cersei chapter, Varys for setting up a situation that plays perfectly into his plan to create chaos and uncertainty amongst the factions in King's Landing, all while saving his own neck with minimal effort and risk. His understanding of the pawns who think they are players' instincts and actions is highly developed, thus he has arranged them in his game accordingly. A lot to think about there. And in the Tyrion chapter, he gets it, that's Varys, for setting up much more pleasant traveling accommodations for Tyrion than he had on the show, and for placing him perfectly where he can be most useful to advance Varys and Illyrio's Targaryen plotting. And uh, Christina, in her email, adds, Gee, I can't wait to see what Varys does next. All right, so those were da, some... Da, da. Uh... Pretty serious owns. Yeah. I was impressed. Yeah, we got a lot of good ones. This is the best part about reading this story together. We get to experience it between the four of us, but also all of you reading at home, and it just amplifies the situation. I feel like the the, the way we're reading it, sort of spaced out, is plays a lot into that, but also just the group think. It's just really amplifying all of this together, and we're picking up so much more than we would do on our own. So Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. If you're reading along with us and you're not writing in owns, that's cool. If you're listening and not reading along with us, that's cool. And actually, I don't know where I'm going with that because it seems like I'm okay <laughs> with everything. <laughs> I was just going to say send in your owns because it's fun. Definitely do that. What Zach said, um, if you want to, you can, of course, reach us on Facebook by scrolling on our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash game of owns. Twitter.com slash Game of Owns or at Game of Owns on Twitter to tweet at us with your owns. On Patreon, we did get an own from there, patreon.com slash goo. Go check that out. We've got some unique reward tiers for supporting our show. And finally, on email, contact at Game of Owns 
com is our email address. Don't wear it out. And uh, creative wear it out. subject. Do wear it out. If you're not subscribed to A Squad of Ice and Fire on Patreon, what are you doing? It's our favorite podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best podcast in the world. The last episode of Squad of Ice and Fire that we recorded, I was yelling so much that my throat kind of hurt after. Well, if that's not, you guys are I'm still getting messages about Ted Carcass, the CEO of Coldies. So <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty happy. With- I was on that group text as well. Lies, lies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's fun, and this was fun. Damn it! Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one other way that uh, you can give us your feedback and interact with the show is over on iTunes. Uh, it is the month of February, so nothing less than. Five stars is acceptable when you rate and review the show. Otherwise, we'll feed you some really suspect mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly a crapshoot if they're poison or not, but why take the chance? Yeah, don't risk it. Uh, as we've mentioned many times on the show, iTunes is really uh, a great way for many other people out there to find out that we exist. And we've heard quite a few times from listeners of the show that they've read reviews on iTunes and that has led them to download the show and listen, and they become listeners uh, for a long time. So uh, we, of course, appreciate you doing that. And uh, there's a lot of great things to come uh, prior to Season 6. We have uh, some stuff in the works that we will uh, talk about on next week's episode. And uh, speaking of next week's episode, we enter into somebody's mind who we have yet to do so. Uh, so I love how this this keeps happening. Yeah. These new characters that uh, we're getting inside the heads of, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Of course, we're talking about Brienne and Sansa. Mm-hmm. If you want to follow along our reading order with us, you can find it at afeastwithdragons.com. Everybody really loves the colors. Very pretty colors. <laughs> Fire on there the top. There it is. Fire. Boom. Dragons. I don't know. This this is this has been fun. This is good. We're excited. It's like season six is approaching, and we know that that's a big deal, and that everyone's going to get excited, and then even more people are going to join the community. They're like, "Oh, it's time to listen to a Game of Thrones podcast again." But you that are listening right now, you get it. We're we're this is what we're excited about. We're excited about Tyrion and Cersei chapters being together. We're excited for reading a feast for crows and a dance of dragons together. So high fives all around for season six. The teaser is great. We're probably going to get a trailer soon, and the photos were fun. And you know we'll talk about the trailer when it happens. But this is uh, where the real magic is. Illyrio with rings that we can live off of for years <laughs> if we only had a cleaver to chop them down. Did we say bye? <laughs> I think so. I think we do. 